You're listening to the Coffee Clatch Crew podcast with your hosts, Jason and Christina. Consider it your digital water cooler. I do hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Stand episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we take our stand with episode six, The Vigil. Once again, written by Jill Killington and Nate Lee, directed by Chris Fisher. IMDb stays at a 7.5 and Rotten Tomatoes a 60%, so same as last episode. I have two quotes from critics for you that I think sum up my overall thoughts well. Because with this episode, Jason, like you, I was enjoying the narrative. I was enjoying the tension, Mm -hmm. thinking most of the plot beats are correct. There was something a little empty about the overall character arcs. And I think this is sins of the past, problems that carry over from previous episodes. So Vulture said this was a stronger episode that felt more genuinely dangerous. Gone is the flashback structure that plagued the first four episodes, finally giving Skarsgård space to feel threatening. More confidently paced, written, and performed, it sets up the final third of the show with tension. Another critic said, though, part of what made the stand so epic was learning about these characters on their journeys west wondering who would make it if anybody would wind up on the wrong side of the battle lines. Here, most characters, except Harold, are tragically underdeveloped. Nick's death is superficial, as we never got to know him. We don't know why Flag might think Julie is worthy of special treatment. Trashcan Man has no background. And even Flag and Mother Abigail's showdown rang hollow without motivation. And unfortunately, I think that's all true as well. As per usual, my favorite moments of the episode were with Harold. <laughs> I think maybe we didn't need all of what happened in the basement with Fran. It was sort of rehashing a lot of what we already knew. But I think they're relying on it heavily because Owen Teague continues to kill it. Yep. And he's the one we're most connected to. Now, unlike the books, there was nobody else in the house for the vigil when the explosion took place, pretty much besides Nick. There were people outside. We're not sure in the end who's going to wind up being injured or lost. We don't see the aftermath of that quite yet. But the only one they could place in imminent danger was him because the rest of the characters we care about were already out of there and we don't know anybody else. That's kind of a problem. I'm assuming there was some fallout with extras that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. When Nick opened the piano, there were still people hanging out on the deck and I think they're still there. People started running when Stu said to run, but... It it was a big explosion, Mm. so those people are still in the danger zone. Mm -hmm. But you're right. There isn't much of a payoff. One, we don't know Nick that well, just like that critic said. I like him. They showed us enough to to make us feel like he's a good guy. There's a reason why Mother Abigail wanted him to be basically her right-hand man. But on top of not knowing him enough, I felt like there was no reason for him to... (laughs) To get killed. Yeah. Okay, he got a feeling. Then he opens it up and stares at it. Why didn't they make it where he got a feeling, he opened it up, and then started, well, he can't talk. Well, he can yell. It's not like he doesn't have vocal cords, right? We believe so. In the books, he also had damage from childbirth that he was mute in addition to being deaf. Uh, We're not quite sure what the case is here, but yeah, have him get other people Flailing. out. Flailing starts pushing people. Sign to Franny. I think it would have been more high tension if Stu is talking to Franny, but he's down, Stu's already down the road too far. And as Stu is realizing, and she says bomb, that's when Nick is realizing that it's a bomb. And he starts running and he just grabs people 
and he starts trying to get them out. And then, mm-hmm. okay, he still dies, jumping off the deck. But it's there's more to it than him just staring at it. Yeah, it's really anticlimactic. This is something that we've been building up to all series and all novel. And Nick is one of your most beloved characters there. So while you're relieved that more people aren't lost, it is a genuine sadness. Nick was the spiritual center, the heart of the group. We'll talk about how that went down differently in the books when we get to that section, but it is not the impact of, let's say, in this show, if we lost Fran or Stu or Tom. All of this buildup with the Harold situation Mm -hmm. feels like there should be a lot more of a tragic end, and this is going to prompt some factors that continue forward. So I don't think it's necessarily anything they did wrong in this episode. It's just the cumulative effect of not latching on more and understanding these characters throughout their journey, like the critic said. (laughs) All of that traveling to get here on the road stuff that maybe people thought we didn't need, I've been saying from the beginning is so important to establishing the relationships. We needed more of it. While I did really enjoy Vegas a lot more than last episode, we're not going to get into that yet because we're going to talk new characters soon. It too has some holdover problems. Just like you said, these are problems that are not because of this episode, but because of the way the beginning episode started. But as a whole, I did enjoy this episode way more than last. There were a lot of thrilling moments, Mm -hmm. you know, hanging on the edge of your seat kind of moments. Bobby Terry and Flag. Bobby Terry was fantastic. That was uh, Clifton Collins Jr. is amazing. This is the first time we get to see Flag as a threat, and I yes. love it. Why didn't we have this sooner? I thought it was a great mixture with Flag of him being patient mm. with dumb humans, almost comically, where he's waiting, like if it's with a child, he's staring at Lloyd, waiting for Lloyd to go, I apologize for interrupting. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> And then the way he's talking to Trash Can Man, which we'll get into. By the way, Trash Can Man, awesome. Yep. yep. But, but New character. Then you see that switch. And I love that. That's what we're supposed to see with Flag. Yeah. And now he's scary. And as a viewer, you're like, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? What is he capable of? Exactly. He lets him walk away, which just adds to the tension. Then he starts, breaks open the door, and I'm like, well, you're going to have to fix that. Uh <laughs> The elevator scene, the doors closing slowly as Flag is walking up, the tension build up. Oh, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Despite the genuine terror, you do manage to still incorporate some of the eccentric qualities of the Jamie Sheridan 94 flag that I love. Mm. It was always such a beautiful balance that was so hard to describe. You have this man who is fairly good looking, grinning, all dressed in denim and cowboy boots. He's kind of winking and saying silly things. And you're thinking to yourself, what kind of villain is this? Mm -hmm. But the fact is that he's unstable. He's almost bipolar. He flips back and forth from a cool regular guy to somebody who's looking at an individual for 30 seconds and causing them to go insane. You don't know what's going to happen next. And that's the fear of flag that we haven't been getting thus far. Mm. My analysis feels correct that it's not Skarsgård's performance. It's how he's being directed to perform. Because here, it seems like he nails it, whereas I was a little underwhelmed by how he played it last episode. I think in the elevator, it would have been cool to see him transform into a few of his animals. And they all fought and beat up Bobby. So like the wolf would come in and get him down on the ground. And then 
a bunch of crows start pecking at his eyes. We did have, though, animal appearances more this time than previous. And I think when he comes in and he's crouching towards the floor, it's an indication that he is actually in wolf form at that moment. Okay. He's just looking like flag to him because then it seems he rips him apart with his teeth. True. Disembowels him. So I do think that was kind of the wolf aspect. Got it. And then later when he's got the showdown with Mother Abigail, of course, he turns into a flock of crows. I like that. I miss him being an animal when it suits him. There are really a lot of positive things to talk about, but let's start at the beginning with our title. They kept it to the vigil, and I think that works. Vigil, as a word, stands for a period of purposeful sleeplessness or an occasion for devotional observance. They're meaning it quite literally here in that they're holding a vigil for Mother for Mother Abigail, who we still don't know where she's at. We're conducting a search for her. I'm still angry, by the way. Now, I had assumed that was the end of it, like we would never see her again, mm. which made me even more angry. But, all right, I was like, oh, good, so we do see her again. But then as it went along, I was still thinking, but really very selfish of her. Okay, she wanted to go into the woods to talk to, to find God again, but I still feel that's for selfish reasons. Okay, it's not but I totally understand why you get that read based on the information you have here without having read the novel. Mm. Let's talk about that when we get to her section. I think it's really important. And I can only say so much because we've seen half of it at this point. Now, I can say a little bit more in our spoiler section as per usual. Stay tuned for that in our closer look. The thing is, the book is over a thousand pages long. We're so not going to get to everything in nine episodes. Because of that, we wanted to remind you, as soon as we're done with our regular weekly episode coverage, following the finale, episode nine, CKC will be doing a bonus episode, kind of a final last look at the season as a whole. And we're going to depend on you, Clatchers. We'll have questions for you. This is going to be the community podcast where everyone is part of the discussion. We'll have our season ratings, our series MVP, any fun tidbits we didn't have time for throughout the season. But Jason, you know that still doesn't give me enough book talk. Because I can never get enough. Some of you might be sick of that at this point. I've brought in so much information. But I feel we've barely even scratched the surface. I think it adds to the story. Oh, that's good to know. For that reason, we're going to be trying something new. For the first time ever, CKC is going to be having a book club. In so many words. I didn't want her to call it that because most of you people will be like, I'm not going to read a thousand words. I, I just watched the show. It's kind of a book club because it's going to be heavily based on the novel. But Christina's going to do a little fun twist with it. Oh, as always, we'll have typical CKC segments. We are going to talk about some of the plot points, but again, you can't belabor it in a novel this long. We're going to have three episodes because King's book breaks it up into three sections or three acts. Each podcast will cover one of the books. And we're going to have some fun guests on to help join me so that it's not just my voice in your ears. I'll I'll tell you this. You don't have to read the books to enjoy it. Christina is going to do the reading for you and give you the best parts of it. Yeah. So if you read it a long time ago, you can't quite remember. You'd like a brush up. If you've never read it before and you're just thinking, what more did I miss here in this series that perhaps was fleshed out further in the novels? Or once the series ends and you're going, I just kind of wish there was more stand. Mm -hmm. This is going to be the place for you. Three episodes. Stay tuned to CKC. Back to the vigil, we had a couple of music notes, including Spirit World Rising by Daniel Johnston. This is the weird kind of twangy guitar music as we have our introduction to Trash Can Man. Mm -hmm. Black Betty, Ram Jam. Yeah. 
really like that as Tom watches Julie walk by. And Perfect Day by Lou Reed playing over the end credits. For new faces and places, we got two big ones. That's a surprise to say in episode six of nine, you're introduced to one of them, a fairly major character from the books, Trash Can Man. In the 94, played by Matt Frewer, and I don't think anyone can top Matt Frewer for me, but here, played by Ezra Miller, another big name. I think Ezra is doing a really fun twist on Matt Frewer's Trash Can Man. But again, I think it leaves the character a little one-dimensional. But I guess that really fits. That's probably perfect for the show. It's a little Ezra over the top, bish. (laughs) And at moments could probably get annoying. But the character itself is intriguing enough that I'm interested to see where he goes. I was eager to talk about this. I feel very torn because I do sincerely appreciate Ezra Miller as an actor. I thought, what a wonderful choice for such a bizarre character. They left me hanging so long I knew I was going to be disappointed no matter what. It feels as though someone should have way reigned in Ezra Miller. Hmm. He had entirely too much leash, and he's taking it to a 12, where a 9 would have more than sufficed. The problem is, and it's not just his performance, although that's a big piece, it's the writing as well, it's not giving you the backstory of Trash Can Man because he's not just a raving lunatic. He is an individual who has schizophrenia in the books. He has pyromania, but a great deal of his difficulty comes from traumatic experiences he had early on. He was sent to a psychiatric hospital in Terre Haute when he was younger, where he received electroshock therapy, then incarcerated as a teenager for arson, sort of allowed to fall further and further off without any help And now that the world has ended, he is able to just run around and light fires until his heart's content, nearly blowing himself up, badly burning himself, and receiving the dreams he's kind of waited for forever. I have a purpose for you. Yet when he comes to Vegas, he's still basically just a very troubled person who finally finds a chance to belong. It's the big message I said they should be purporting about what Flag's group is. He finally considers maybe it's okay to let his guard down and be part of these people. Maybe he's, he's found his purpose. The way Ezra's playing him, he's barely human. I don't know how else to say it. It was uncomfortable when Trash Can Man was being led through the Inferno floors by Lloyd. Uh, his yelling, his over-the-top, that was too much for me. I Repeating think, people, the ticks he has, he can't process anything. I think it would have been more impactful because it, it, when you meet someone or, or something happens and it's out of 12, nothing is impactful with that person anymore. Nothing's out of the ordinary. What if they made it where he was at like a 10 when you first meet him and he's exploding something and you're like, okay, that makes sense. He's freaking out because he's, he's exploding something. But then you start to get to know him through this walk through the hotel floor and you see he's, he's at a, an eight or a nine, and he's troubled, like you were saying. And you can introduce those little characteristics where he finally feels like he belongs somewhere. And then maybe later on in the storyline, when it comes to a head, you can have him go he 16. He up, absolutely. You, you have to do that. And okay, this is exactly how Matt Frewer played it in the 94. I don't know quite how to describe it, but if you watch some clips of Matt Frewer in the 94 version... There's an awareness. He's present. And I think 
in the rare quieter moments here with Ezra, because there's not many, but where he's showing Flag how to light the fire. And explaining things about history. A good director would have said, that's what you should be 90% of this episode. Mm -hmm. You can notch it up a couple degrees from here to there, but this is our introduction to Trash. Yeah, and when you notch it up, it's going to be impactful. It feels like in listening to some interviews, and I don't mean to say anything negative about the actors of this show, I think many of them are doing a great job with the material they have, and it's mainly a fault of the writing and the pacing, but sometimes where you hear stories about the actors being given some more space to just take the characters where they will, such as Julie and Lloyd, and here with Ezra, maybe they just let them go and they didn't quite realize that's not totally in line with the bigger vision. Well, Chris, there's a good comparison. Julie, she has different levels. Many times where you feel like, oh, she's not that crazy. She's Mm. very thoughtful and methodic with what she's doing. And then you can see, then when she does her crazy things, starts shooting a shotgun, you're like, it, it just means that much more. But Lloyd, no. And, and they managed to make it work here because, like you said, we have Flag dealing with the fact that they're all children and can't <laughs> follow his instructions. But I think it still would have been better if there's a degree of capability. In the books, Lloyd was never a genius. He readily admits it. But he was a good right-hand man. He was loyal. He was directable. Yeah. Uh, his henchmen were less than stellar. And that's what's supposed to come out here. And I think it does in a great way with our other new character introduction, Bobby Terry. In the 94, this was a famous cameo by Sam Raimi, well-known director and producer. He played Bobby Terry. This time around, it's Clifton Collins Jr., who's been in many things, but we love him as Lawrence in Westworld. Just like the books, Bobby Terry is stationed at a checkpoint along the road, set on the lookout for Judge Ferris. His strict orders are to keep her alive and bring her back, In the books, because Flag wants to send the head to Boulder as a warning. So he's saying, you know, the face can't be damaged. Here, I think it's great he needs the judge alive because he doesn't know still who the third spy is and he's hoping to get information. That all works perfectly. It is a huge shame, and I did see this coming, that we're not going to get anything with Judge Ferris. But okay, fine. As one critic said, Collins has some honestly dangerous energy as opposed to whatever odd choices are being made by Wolf and Miller, he's snarky. He doesn't (laughs) respect the power of Flag. He doesn't know what Flag's truly capable of. Is this just some dictator who thinks he owns me? I think not. Gives him the finger right to his face. And we know what's coming, so (laughs) I think that's a great way to play it. it It was brilliant. Since we're getting into it, let's just head over to our crow's eye view, because we'll open up with our scenes in Vegas. What we didn't mention before we get there, we see Trash Can Man somewhere out in the desert, yelling crazily as he sets bombs to the side of oil tanks and masturbates to them exploding. That's when Flag calls to him, saying, You are the man I want, the one who will bring me the great fire. Trash kneels in worship, receiving visions of all the people in his past who made fun of him, and promises, My life for you. His famous lines. He then journeys to the Hotel Inferno and is shown around, as you said, by Lloyd. He casually tells Lloyd he's going to die. Sorry about that. (laughs) It's your first idea, and they make it clear in the books that Trash has some sort of savantism, number one, when it comes to weapons and fire. They mention he's just able to sniff them out 
That's why Flag's going to send him out into the desert looking for something. But also he gets inklings, perhaps, of what could happen to people. And we have a lot of that going on. We're going to talk about it later on in Boulder. I don't think his is the shining, but maybe the dark version of that. The intuitioning. So when he's taken to Flag and helps him start that fire, Flag starts talking about... The biggest one in history, the 1961 Soviet nuclear test. We'll discuss that more in our closer look later on. He tells Trash he's got this job for him at a military facility in the desert to bring back the fire. And after sending him out, Lloyd assures Flag the airfield will be ready by the time of his return. So I guess we're getting Indian Springs and we just haven't seen it. That's bizarre. Kind of the main purpose of Vegas from the first two iterations. It's the first time we're mentioning it here. Also interesting that Lloyd is jealous that Flag has another lieutenant he clearly has much affection for. Uh, yeah, I would never be jealous because just looking at the type of person Trash Can Man is, I would know right away, okay, my boss is using him and you know I'm not going to get replaced by this crazy lunatic. <laughs> well, but number one, that would, admit, that would mean he would have to admit that he's using him as well. That's what Flag does. True. Number two, this isn't rational. No. He just doesn't want Flag to need anyone, respect anyone more than him, right? Lloyd's supposed to be the man. I think they could have done more with that that would have been really interesting, the hierarchy of Flag and his, his generals. And I think if what you're saying is true about Julie, it would have been interesting to see her in these scenes kind of rolling her eyes or, I don't know, thinking, yeah, okay, Lloyd, you go on believing that you're still the most important person in this project. But it seems he actually is being given a good deal of responsibility if he is the one in charge of what's happening at the airfield. Again, I'm just confused as to how all of this is working. But they don't spend a lot of time on it. Flag assures Lloyd that the fire is for the holdouts, quote unquote. We don't know what that means. And in the meantime, there's another spy that he needs taken alive, the judge. Because every time he seeks the identity of the third spy in Vegas, all he can see is the moon. The storytelling in this episode was very well done. So there's the first seed. Now we see, as a rollover from last episode, what Flag sees, why he knows there's a third one. But where does the disconnect happen? Okay, all he sees is moon. And that seed right there is planted for a really good payoff at the end of Flag's scenes here. Just a culmination of, of well-written segments that we've been waiting for. Yeah, and that's directly from the books. I always love that portion. It takes us right into the Tom scenes where he's looking at the note he was given by Dana and realizing it's the same word as the one on a machine mm. he's operating. So clever. I love it. He brings a woman over and asks, what does this say? She tells him, run. The foreman leaves Tom to finish up the day's job on his own. And after seeing Julie walk by another time, Really recognizing her and remembering the interactions they had, he waits for his chance when everyone leaves and hops aboard the truck, burying himself under the dead bodies. Right on time as well. Again, like last episode, I really think they took the time with key characters in this show, Harold and Tom, and I think we mentioned one more, but Tom indeed is one of these main characters that we already love, and the way they went about it with this word run... Tom was smart enough to know he cannot show the piece of paper that says mm -hmm. run. Just very clever of him. And he starts to piece things together. My only issue is with these three spies. What have our good guys gotten from it? They received no information, unfortunately, from Dana because she's passed. No information from the judge because she never even got to go in there. 
And Tom, I don't know yet, but... Who knows what Tom's seen? Right, yeah, okay. Maybe because of his job, he was brought into rooms where they're discussing things that no one should hear, but it's just Tom. He doesn't even mm-hmm. understand what we're saying, so you can keep talking. Maybe that's it. We just haven't seen it. Yeah, Tom was their main hope for that very reason when they selected the spies. They kind of figured that Flag might be on to this, but was least likely to suspect Tom, as well as other people. But it's true in the books as well. It's like that old saying, man plans and God laughs, or something like that. There is no point to them sending spies. They think they can get on top of this. The same way they're trying to form a society in Boulder and doing all these things that Mother Abigail keeps saying, you foolish people, you're not getting that that's not the main point of what we're here to do. So the real purpose behind what the spies did there was getting to Flag, was making him upset, feeling like things were unraveling, feeling like there wasn't everything under his control. Nothing that they were going to bring back information-wise was going to make them, what, be able to gear up for a military attack or a way to get over on him? That's that's not really it, right? There's also going to be more of a purpose to what goes on in Boulder as well as Tom, but we haven't seen that yet. So let's switch back over to here where we meet Bobby Terry. As we talked about, this was really interesting. He has shot the judge against the orders of Flag to bring her in alive. They bring the body up to Flag, and he's asking these excellent, very calm questions. <laughs> he really just couldn't have de-escalated this situation, right? I mean, this older woman, she, she had it up on you. <laughs> You couldn't take her down. This was the only way. It was self-defense, right, Bobby Terry? Terry refuses to apologize. By the end of the interaction, giving Flag the finger. But then running out of the penthouse, he does seem to realize he's created a mess here and has to get out. Well, he walks out. <laughs> and as the tension the doors behind him. Yeah. As the tension builds for us, it, he's starting to realize, I made a mistake here. Shit. Um, and the fact that there's this elevator that is taking forever to come up just adds to the tension. I mean, there's no stairs (laughs) is what I'm thinking to myself. I wouldn't be waiting. I'd be booking it down some staircase. I'd go down a a few flights, run down the hall, go down the next flight of stairs, probably continue to do stairs because people will be waiting uh, in front of the elevator doors. And it's not going to make a difference, but just to feel like you have momentum. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Um. He doesn't. We get this excellent slow-mo of him down the hallway, him in the elevator. There's violins in the background really ramping up the tension. We got Flag's button. Oh, yeah. Flag blows out those doors. And as we mentioned, appears crouching in that elevator. Very intimidating. And I love that just like the novel in 94, you don't see exactly what happens. You get way more of a visual this time because we're seeing the outside of the glass elevator filled with blood. Mm. But we don't see him inside of the elevator literally attacking Bobby. We just see the result, which is hideous when the door is open and Flag walking out with his heart under his arm. (laughs) Oh, dear. Now, there was one moment here that was incredibly contrived that I didn't like. The rat woman, who I'm happy to see again, continuing to kill it with the execution. But the lines, I mean, who's writing this stuff? She says she's going to get someone right away to come clean it up. You know, go look for the big man, M-O-O-N. Why -hmm. would she say this? You know, it's just, we need a way for Flag to say, oh, moon, that makes sense. I've been getting all these things about the moon. Oh, I disagree with you there. I thought that was brilliantly done, only because they don't know his name. Yeah, but I hated that. I just... And she doesn't really, like, 
intimately know him. Everyone knows that's the big guy who, who says M-O-O-N all the time. You know, the guy, the guy that always said, the big dude that always says M-O-O-N. And she's frantic. She's freaking out mm-hmm. at that point. I don't know. I kind of dug it. Well, but it is really good. I like that you move from that to the shots of, as you said, Tom just makes it. He gets into the truck. And then a few scenes later, you see that he's riding in the back of it and the full moon is up in the sky, exactly when he's been told to return to Boulder. Perfectly done, perfectly executed. The show, unfortunately, doesn't have the time, but I would like to see him struggle to just get back. Some trials and tribulations of of just getting back to Boulder would be amazing. Oh, don't worry. You've got fun in store for Tom, depending on how they play it. I mean, I don't know if they're going to do it the same as the 94 in the books, but there is a very important plot point that they must get to for Tom? We'll eagerly await that. In the meantime, let's head over to Boulder. The citizens are searching everywhere for Mother Abigail with no luck. Ray is upset that Nick hasn't even looked for Mother and thinks everyone else should be more concerned too. There's a tense altercation where the rest are telling her they're doing all they can, but they still need to run things. Yet again, we've got nothing really from Ray. She is a non-character this time around. But they are setting up the vigil You see Nick playing that piano. He gets a flash of the wolf, so there's indications that he too gets sensations, visions, whatever you want to call them. Meanwhile, Harold confronts Nadine about the disappearance and wonders what else she isn't telling him. It's his first inkling that even to flag, maybe, he's the one nobody pays attention to. Nadine is the real disciple, and she flat out tells him, he tells me everything, he needs me. Oh man, this is really just gonna send Harold over the deep end. He needs us. Is that so? So tell me, how badly does this fuck us? Completely. Sideways, in fact. Did you know that the Chinese character for crisis includes the Chinese character for opportunity? There's gonna be a vigil tonight at Mother Ray's house. And I'm betting just about every soul in Boulder is going to be there, all crowded together. Why kill just the committee? When we can take out everyone. And Nadine has the perfect place to plant the bomb. Now, I have to say, I guess I was wrong. I thought this was the big point of Harold searching for Annie's house was to look for a place to plant that bomb because that's what was going on in the books that I don't remember if it was Stu and Franny's house, but it was wherever they were going to have the committee meeting and that's why he was going looking around. You mean the camera? It wasn't a camera in the books. There was no camera. But I thought maybe that's the sidebar of that. They're showing you he's planting a camera to spy on Franny and Stu, but really what he's looking for is a place to plant the bomb. Turns out not that way in the series. He planted in Mother Abigail's house. It was a little weird how they had to shift all these pieces to make them fit. I'm asking myself, what was the point of all of last episode? The spying with the camera and all of that. Maybe it should have just been in direct relation to the bomb because that feels like a subplot that was, in hindsight, unnecessary. I thought the meaning of the camera in her bedroom had nothing to do with Stu, had nothing to do with spying. It was purely sexual. Yeah, that's what I mean. It turns out it was. And I think we've gotten enough of that. I think that should have been more buildup that you weren't aware of that was about this bigger mission to plant the bomb. Uh, They're trying to fit two different sections because we didn't have that diary piece of him becoming suspicious of Franny and their showdown and then also the eventual culmination of I'm going to kill everyone. Mm. 
and it was too close together, too jammed with several spying and breaking and entering scenes and keeping Franny in the basement, which didn't happen in the last version. Now, that was cool because it created tension. There is a genuinely terrifying moment where they confront each other. But the end result of what happens at the meeting now is so radically different that I don't see the point. Oh, maybe the point was just to give a reason why Harold would actually go to the house to have dinner with them. Yeah, but they fabricated that whole dinner in the first place. That's what I mean. Um, Do that earlier on or don't do it at all or have it mesh in with the bomb scene because even Nadine coming to Mother Abigail's house, it all felt awkward. Like they were trying to put those pieces in, but they didn't quite fit. What is Nadine doing there? She's putting out these cards from Joe. I don't know. It, It was strange. They really had to work it and again, a little bit contrived. But that's how she makes it fit. She says Joe's created these things that she's going to put around the house for the vigil. Joe and the kids. Right. And sneakily, that nobody notices, puts this huge container next to the piano. A poster board. Maybe they just thought that, you know, some of the kids made posters. I'm assuming. I guess so. Everything feels forced. And my biggest problem, I I do think the interaction works where she kind of goes at Larry for not realizing that he shouldn't take a kid to the vigil. Um, You you aren't talking about having Joe there tonight, are you? Tell me you've thought this through more than that. The vigils, you remember the vigils at the very beginning when everyone started getting sick? Well, the children sure do. Mostly what they remember is going to those vigils and then coming back home and everyone they knew and loved getting sick and dying. How do you think that's left them feeling about vigils, generally? thus causing him to leave Joe with her so she can keep Joe out of danger, but to go himself. That was a good premeditated plan for that. That was very smart. And then we have Harold coming in for the night watch shift Mm -hmm. to get Stu. That made sense why he was in there. What I'm missing is when did either Harold or Nadine have the time to pull the bomb out of the poster board and put it into the piano? And why even bother? Right. So why drop it off where it could be spotted in the first place with Nadine if she wasn't putting it into the piano at that moment? If you have to go back and put it in there, why not just wait till you're going back and putting it in there or just leave it next to the piano? It doesn't need to be inside of it to blow the house up. That's what I mean, that the steps leading up to it aren't entirely fitting together for me. I do enjoy, as you said, Harold is coming to collect Stu to continue this search for Mother Abigail. They're going grid by grid. And they have an interaction. I kind of wish they had built this up more. This was a moment I had you listen to from the audiobooks where it's different, but they're searching for Mother Abigail. Stu's calling for Harold on the radio, and you're getting inside of Harold's first-person perspective, what he actually thinks of Stu. I don't know if you remember that, where he's responding to Stu on the radio. Yeah, okay, couldn't find her, too Mm -hmm. bad. But then he clicks off, and he's going, I'm going to kill you, you're such a jackass, (laughs) da-da-da. Um, this is the equivalent of that, him pulling the gun, thinking about shooting Stu while they're out there alone together. He could have done it. It would have been heard. It would have been really dumb of him. Of course, but he would have gotten away with killing him. Knowing that there's a whole army of friends out there, uh, friends, the community out there in the woods looking for Mother Abigail, that fire, that gunshot would be heard throughout the woods and someone would come. Yeah, I guess... What I'm thinking is, what's the real reason Harold doesn't do it? Because, number one, if it is just about personal vengeance, and he tries to pretend it's about a greater destiny, he's been summoned by flag, 
But doesn't a lot of it come down to what he was telling Franny? This unrequited love, even at the end of the world, he couldn't get the girl and Stu's the one responsible, right? Because mm. he took her. We know that's what he's emotionally feeling and the one he really wants to take it out on is Stu. If it was all personal, he could have done that here. Mm. I don't think he wants to truly kill everyone in Boulder. I think he grapples with that from beginning to end. I think there's a part of him when Franny's talking to him in the basement that, that, almost gave in. that wants to say, you're right, I don't have to do this. Even when he blows up the bomb later, he has to do it hand in hand with Nadine. He can't just push the button himself. Also, it's a lot easier to push a button from a distance mm. than to shoot a gun point blank Exactly. Exactly. And I think... There is also that fear, that wondering, am I as important to Flag as I thought I might be because of what Nadine said? Nope. I mean, you can see when he comes to Franny's house, there are just these huge dark circles under his eyes that weren't there before. Harold's tormented. But anyway, he doesn't shoot Stu. They have this conversation where Stu thinks maybe everything that happened to the world prior to this is random, but Harold continues to insist it's destiny. And they're ultimately interrupted by Norris, who tells them they can return to town. There's enough people on this search, and unfortunately, he doesn't think Mother Abigail has even survived this long. So they can just head back for the vigil. Yeah, it's cold outside. She doesn't have winter clothes. She's over 100. What are, what are the chances? Mm -hmm. And while this is happening, Franny sneaks into Harold's house. So we do get that moment. <laughs> I was upset that we hadn't gotten Franny actually taking the action for herself. In the basement, she sees all the camera monitors, sees the weaponry. And concern turns to fear as she finds what he has in the back room. The sticks of dynamite and his manifesto, guidepost to a better life. The top of it, hell is other people. Jean-Paul Sartre. We talked about him in Mr. Robot. Yep. Um, so fitting for Harold. Everything he's writing here. The start of it is sort of what we were just saying. He writes, To follow one's start is to concede the power of some greater force, some providence. Yet is it still not possible the act of following itself is the taproot of an even greater power? Your God, your devil, owns the keys to the lighthouse. I've grappled with that so long and hard in these last two months. But to each of us, he's given the responsibility of navigation. Why was I condemned to live a life of worthlessness? You've had your time. Now it's my turn. Flag's time. I will fix this broken world. I will punish everyone. And it will be beautiful. This world will know what I am worth. Even in his writing, he's trying to come to terms with that. There is this greater force. And what does that mean for me? But I still have this responsibility to do things. <laughs> Right? And I can. I'm going to blow everyone up. I'm going to make a fresh start. Thus, when Harold discovers Franny, he thinks none of this has gone how it was supposed to. It wasn't supposed to go like this. Captain Trips was supposed to be my great adventure. Me. Me. Harold Emery Louder. The kid everybody looked right by. The kid whose own fucking parents pretended like he didn't even exist. And then one day, they didn't exist. Not just them, everybody. And it was just you and me. You were the only girl that I'd ever wanted or cared about. The girl that I wouldn't have a shot with unless I were the last man on earth. And then I was. And then came Stu fucking Redman. And I was still alone. And you all threw me away again 
So I'm gonna fix things. I'm gonna fix this whole world, Fran. One blast of violence. One pointed stroke of cruelty to set the world right. So you're gonna pay. And I'm gonna kill every last one of Mother Abigail's little fuckwit disciples. Except you. This is where Franny tries to talk him down. He's wrong about that. He had a second chance here in Boulder. Yep. And people who loved him. I don't know why she didn't mention Teddy. That was the perfect example of that. Oh, yeah. We saw it. We saw it in his eyes. I think it was the second episode, maybe. No, maybe it was the first. Where he saves Teddy. And what Teddy says to him, you saved my life, man. There was a part of his brain that said, I can be somebody different here. Unfortunately, his insecurities won that over. I thought she played into it very well. She was, you know, manipulating him back into... Obviously, if she got out of there, if he was like, you're right, and let her get out, they weren't going to be like best friends and, you know, all's well, ends well. But I think she was doing a decent enough job to try to counter manipulate him to get out of there. Yeah, it felt a little frantic to me, though, as though she had totally lost it. And she kept trying to relate it back to her. You still have me, which was a plan that was never going to make sense because in Harold's mind, he can't have her the way he wants to and he never will. That's a mark of his failure. Don't bring that up again. Mm. Bring up stuff that he does have that's different, such as Teddy, such as his role in the committee and everything else he's doing here. I think it showed to me this time around that Franny doesn't really know him as well as she's trying to purport she knows him and then manipulation's bound to fail. Which, yeah, she doesn't know which him. Which perhaps knows, is the point. Yeah, she knows the fake him, the facade that he's given her. Also, I don't know, bringing up Teddy, because Teddy's dead, probably would have been, the, the timing would have been bad. <laughs> it it would have made him, I think, step back and realize that this hate isn't the only thing he has to hold on to. Mm. Even grief is better than rage. Well, what I really enjoyed about this is during your closer looks, you've made me aware of her diary in parallel with his manifesto and how that was building up, building up in, the, in the novel. And this was their shorthand way of doing it. She still finds out what's really in his head by reading his manifesto. It just happens like in quick su- succession in this episode. So Cavill had something to say about these scenes. And I got this from Den of Geek. Cavill said, It was hugely important in regards to this unbearably tense scene between Harold and Franny. It felt in some way like that's what we've been building up to in that relationship. We've seen Harold hiding his face from her from the very first episode. He's at such great pains to put on a show for her at various times. I mean, both in Agonquit and later in Boulder. He rehearses before he, before he goes and talks to her. So it felt like we needed to get to that moment where all of that is pulled away. There's no subterverge. They're just sort of naked in front of each other. While King himself didn't write a final face-to-face confrontation between Franny and Harold before the latter takes off for Vegas, Cavill does note that the tortured relationship between the two was expressed in the book through the diaries that both characters keep, a format that probably would not translate well to screen. Cavill says, Some of that stuff about the diaries in the book also feels a little flimsy to me if you start to really go through it. I mean, I've never understood why they found Harold's diary, and then they don't confront him about it. That just seems to me like it's almost insane. He's talking about these terrible things that he is going to do to people in Boulder. And not only is there no follow-up with it, they don't even really seem to keep an eye on him. So yeah, the dueling diaries just didn't seem like something that would lend itself to the screen. I mean, we did a little bit in the show of each of them writing a diary, 
but it felt like it was going to be a stand-in for a real confrontation scene between them. And I'm so happy we did one. Well, I partially agree and partially disagree because their main problem here is with Harold's diary. And I get that. I get the why not confront him sooner thing, which, of course, they were going to discuss in the meeting that Franny's going to bring it to Stu's attention, her and Larry. And the meeting is where the bomb winds up going off. Mm. So that's a big piece that I'm going to complain about later. But if the problem was with Harold's diary, they actually did it here. And I think they did it well, the manifesto, showing it earlier on, him writing on it all the way through, Franny finding it here. What they left out was Franny's diary. And that's why, yet again, her character just doesn't get fleshed out enough for me. The tipping point for Harold there is finding out what Franny truly thought about him. Hmm. It's, it's not just the fact that she went to Stu instead. It's all of these things she wrote in there right. that make him believe no one will ever see him any different. And I don't think this final conversation, you're fully getting that. I'm ping, picking up on the... She doesn't really know him and never will. That's kind of the story he told at dinner about her. But it's just not fully hitting that mark. I think it's the closest thing that Harold-Franny relationship is done beautifully. And I think, again, what it more messes up is this vigil meeting scene later on. Yeah. But Cavill is right. It did result in good TV. Yeah. During the standoff, for sure. Thrilling, uh, very amazing tension being built. Harold being even scarier in this version somehow. Very tension-filled episode. And this moment where she fails to talk him down, he apologizes but runs out and locks her in the room saying, this is the only way. The last back and forth we're missing, when Larry brings Joe to Nadine, he tells her she was right. Empathy has never been his strong suit, but he does care about her. She says, you're a good man. Larry Underwood. She's still playing him, telling him he needs to go to the vigil, insinuating they can talk another time. I think Mm. that's the feeling Larry's getting. Yeah. Just not in front of Joe. But before leaving, Joe whispers in Larry's ear, Nadine and Mommy Nadine are two different people. Hmm. And there was a lot of that going on in the books. As we mentioned, there's no Lucy Swan here who Larry was in a new relationship with. And thus, he had two mommies caring for him in the book, Mommy Lucy and Mommy Nadine. So that was really the play there, and Larry choosing Lucy and the goodness instead of Nadine. But also, there was more of this Nadine needing Joe, caring for him, all this stuff that Mother Abigail says, I know you're really trying to be there for him. But by the end, she realizes it's not Joe anymore. This boy is now talking and recovering, interacting with people, It's Leo, the boy before I found him on the road. He's come back to Leo. He's no longer Joe. And you do have a moment later on, too, where Nadine is leaving him at the school, and she says, that's not my Joe. Mm. So the both of them looking at each other, realizing this isn't the same person. And they're doing a little shorthand for that. In these two scenes, this one with Larry and Nadine, and the one we were just talking about with Harold and Franny, I thought there was some opportunity for them to both change their mind. I was like, oh, God, they're right there. Maybe they're going to see it. And that was the big thing in the original stories is Harold and Nadine are the two that could go either way. Yeah. You're always thinking they might make the choice to come back to the good side. And was it their destiny or was it free will? Uh, Even Nadine, who was selected as a 12-year-old by flag, thinks if she chose to be with Larry, she could break that spell and it's over. 
I don't know if I'm ever getting it enough as strong in this series, but you're right that in this episode. Yeah, in the episode. It's a good couple of moments. And particularly with Joe, who winds up kind of being the real unsung hero of this piece. Do you think if Larry slept with her the night before, or last week, I don't know how many nights it's been, um, it would have changed yeah. things? Yeah. Flag wouldn't want her. So you know what? Larry's the real bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Larry. No, he is a good guy. Well, he does realize, you know, obviously after what Joe says to him, he tries to call for help on the radio but finds the wires have been cut. He runs out to his bike and it won't start. She's tampered with that too. Oh dear, we're in trouble. That's when we realize uh, there was no chance. Mm -hmm. She wasn't going to turn at that point. Well, not, no, not by this time. She brings Joe to the school. I think there's a cute moment here where the TV's playing in the background and it's saying evil existed long before good. And that's when Joe walks up and touches Nadine. There's this effort by him as well to make her stop. But she brushes him off. There's something I got to do. I'll be right back. Blah, blah, blah. Even though she won't. Joe feels something. Of course he does. I really think you're right that he has a little bit of the shine. He definitely does. Because then he's sitting there and he hears Mother Abigail's voice saying, you can't send me anywhere that God can't find me. And walks out into the forest to the exact spot when they've had a team of God knows how many citizens in Boulder scanning section by section and can't find her. Joe is able to just go right to her because he sees it. He's gotten these visions. Yeah. um, I'm assuming she was pretty far away by that time. So I think I have no evidence to put this forth, but I think he shined over there. I don't think he physically was there. That could be, except they lead you to believe it's his screaming that draws the rest of the group down to come and, and so. then say they found her. I just felt like she was gone for a while, so she wasn't like a mile down the road. She was. I don't even think it's about how far. It's that she was difficult to find, and Joe knew exactly okay. where to look because he'd gotten the vision, which is incredible. Yeah, so then they heard his voice, and then they came. They okay. came to the scream, gotcha. yeah, because now... The vigil begins. The town members are arriving at the house. Stu is concerned because he hasn't heard from Fran or Larry. But Norris comes in on the radio notifying them, we found Mother Abigail. Again, high tension. You're like, oh my God, don't go in there. (laughs) Now, the, the issue with moving all of these pieces elsewhere to reconfigure the story is, like I said, in the books, this is a committee meeting. So you're big, important people are all in one house. Right. Stu, Franny, Larry, Glenn, discussing what they're going to do about missing Mother Abigail. This is when Franny's going to bring up what her and Larry found. And she starts getting bad feelings and doesn't know why. She's trying to ignore them. She has a sense they should all get out of the house. She begins to tell Stu, we have to go, we have to get out. And he's saying, what are, what are you talking about? She's like, right now, we just have to get out. And he's not really paying her any attention. And then they hear yelling from outside, Mother Abigail's back, come out. And they all start to gradually come out of the house, but Nick won't leave. Nick's drawn to something in the closet. She keeps pulling at him, and he keeps telling her to go. He finally gets her out and opens the door and sees the bomb. And that's when it explodes. So there is more tension that you could lose the most important people in this novel, all of them together in that room. Mm. It's a combination of her sensations, maybe a touch of the shine, Mother Abigail's return, bringing them out of the house, all these forces sort of coalesce so that you don't lose everyone. That same tension is definitely not here, as we mentioned, because it's really just Nick left in the house by that point. 
Yeah, but they did provide other attention. You know, is Franny going to get there in time? She's exhausted. She's uh, pregnant. Mm -hmm. She just went through a hell of a time. She's running down the block. You do have the news of Mother Abigail bringing them out still, which is nice that her return, in essence, saves a lot of them. Yeah, but it, but it all goes down to why did Nick just stand there and stare at it? Yeah, and you do have these kind of epic words where in the amphitheater, Harold and Nadine both press the detonator at the same time, but first Harold comes over the radio saying, this is Harold Emery Lauder speaking. I do this of my own free will. And of course... The only one there is Nick, who can't hear those words. Right. Oh, that's very apropos. Mm-hmm. No one's there to hear you, buddy. They point that out in the books. I like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Nick opening the piano just as it's detonating in the entire house, exploding. Maybe this is because we are covering Harry Potter for our movie review, and we just watched it last night, and we will be recording that podcast right after we finish recording this. Maybe that's why I'm thinking this way, but when Flag is in the woods talking to Mother Abigail, I just kept thinking, all she has to use is her Patronus charm, <laughs> and he could go away. We, we didn't really talk about that because it didn't have the impact I was looking for. There is this finally meeting between the two of them that was sort of like the very beginning when Mother Abigail has to go on that trek to the other farm to prepare dinner for the guests arriving and she encounters the weasels that Mm. turn out to be flag. And it's the back and forth of each trying to get each other to back down, instilling fear. Of course, it's not working on Mother Abigail. No matter what he says, she holds strong to her faith, insisting he's the one that's afraid that his people will see right through him and notice there's nothing there. But even the lines are, they're just not impactful. Mm. Um, There's nothing there, and the people are going to see that there's nothing there, and they're going to realize you're nothing, and you're like, okay, (laughs) this is the big thing we've been waiting for, but I'm Legion, and we are many. It, It just falls a little short and really ends abruptly with him just frustrated and sending this gust of wind and a burst of crows. I think I was too busy being hung up on, like, Mother Abigail, why going into the woods? Why would that help you in any <laughs> fucking way? Um, right. So, number one, the only thing that truly has protected them thus far, as we mentioned, all of their goodwill, these things they think are important, sending the spies over, that's not really getting information for them, starting up democracy again in these committee meetings and everything that she insists doesn't matter. There's a greater purpose for bringing them together, and that's why they have the protection of this force of good. If they don't continue doing that, the main battle against evil, will they still have the power of good on their side? Because none of this stuff is is really what's important. So they start straying, and then Mother Abigail starts forgetting what the main mission is. And God's sort of going, excuse me, (laughs) um you got to come back to the point of things here. And it's only by going out to rediscover that for herself that Mother Abigail remembers. Now, we already see her re-engaging in that. The first good act is that it brings her back alive. And the news of that saves a bunch of people that could have died here. So it's almost sort of a direct result. Of God not saying anything. Of God protecting them. I guess. I... It's with all these stories. I always get mad at the whole God part because it's like, I, you're not following what I want and I haven't told you really what I want, but you're not following it. So I'm just going to not talk to you guys anymore and you're on your own. 
Well, <laughs> you have to actually be listening to hear a message, right? <coughs> um, now, I think we're, ta- we're saying God a lot. That's how Mother Abigail's viewing it. King never actually comes right down and says, is this God? Okay. It's some force of good, just like flag is some force of evil. Right, he's not the devil. And mother interprets it that way because this is her religion. This is what she's believed her whole life. But there is a question, is that just how she's seeing it? It's definitively some bigger power that they need to take a stand for. Mm. They need to find the right path. Mm-hmm. And the right path is the CKC Patreon. I just want to say you're going to eat these words next episode. So I know I am. <laughs> but I, I'm, what I'm trying to do is especially when we're doing a podcast, give different angles of thought. Mm -hmm. Even if I don't necessarily 100% feel that way, if I can give a different angle that possibly other people are thinking. I know there's a reason in this show, but I think it's very important to acknowledge the fact that oftentimes in stories, the the good side, I won't even say God, the good side who is trying to follow good isn't being shown the way as much Mm -hmm. as the bad guys are. Mm -hmm. Uh, no, I think you're 100% right. I think it's not clear at this point. And if you were on this side, you'd be left saying, what do you want? I, I don't get it. But I think that's good for this point in the story. Sorry, Jason, I wasn't trying to interrupt you talking about Patreon. That is important news. We mentioned at the top of the show some stuff that we'll be having for these channels here on CKC, but there is more great content to be had over on Patreon. There are several tiers that you can join. Each month, we have three additional podcasts, depending on which tier you join. The first one is Coffee Break, and we just released that for this month. It's a version of our 2020 year reflection that we did in our bonus, a shortened version. Coffee Breaks are also filled with a lot more interactive fun stuff. So we had our word of the year, most Googled things of 2020, and what we're watching, where we give briefer descriptions of other things that we're watching and reading that we don't talk about here on these casts. And even if you're not a Patreon member yet, you can go over to our website, coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on what we're watching, and you can get an overview of uh, some spoiler-free shows, books, and movies that we've watched if you're looking for the next adventure to go on. Then there's the bonus episode where we did our year reflection and the movie tier. As you brought up, we are about to record the movie for this month, which is Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. We are coming back as we periodically do, to cover our full Harry Potter. And no matter the level, there's always a chance to be the raffle winner for this month. Every month we have two raffle drawings that you can win a free item of CKC gear. Congratulations this month to Lee and Rachel as our raffle winners. So if you're looking for more, make sure you head on over to Patreon and check it out. Well, let's talk dream ratings. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give Episode 6, The Vigil? Well, Episode 4, The House of the Dead, was my highest grade so far with 8.4. Last episode, didn't dig it that much, so I had a 7. I'm going to go up, back up to almost the highest. I'm going to go 8.3. A lot of good moments. I agree. I'm looking at it against episode four, which I gave a 9.2. Not my highest still, which was number one, a 9.5. So I'm going to give it the same and I'm going to go up to a 9.2, which coming off my 6.5 last time is a huge bump back up. And now we move over to the most valuable stand, basically the MVP of the episode, where we ask our clatchers via Twitter at CKC Podcast, who is your MVS for this episode? This week, we gave you Franny, Joe, Nick, and Harold. This was one of those weeks where we wish Twitter would give us more than four options. That's what makes it interesting, though, right? Coming in tied for last place is Joe and Harold. Well, 
these were uh, two characters whose actions did the most, I think, this episode. We had Joe who basically saved Mother Abigail and saved the town by having his shining moment and realizing where she was. And we have Harold, who is the creator of the bomb, who, uh, well, with the help of Nadine, planted it. Yeah, good and bad forces, each kind of taking their stand here. So I'm surprised it neither ranked higher, although we've been giving it to Harold a bit. So I suppose he's had his turn. Both of those coming in with 10%. Coming in second place with 30% was Nick. Now, you know, Nick being drastically underserved in this version. We don't get enough backstory for him, but it is his final episode. He does get some inkling of what's happening here, and I think takes his stand, although it's a little hard to figure out exactly what that is. In front of piano. That's his stand. Yeah, what I want to say is he was a beloved character in the books. You do get the feeling, why does he have to die? But it is that age-old question of, those who fight for the good, and why do we need to lose people as good as Nick? Even King himself grappled with this. We haven't mentioned he was having a real writer's block at this point, considered giving up on the book altogether. Oh, wow. And he said if it had been a 300-page manuscript instead of, I don't know, 500, whatever he had at the time, he might have just left it. But he thought he'd put too much work into it. He couldn't give up on it now, and there could be something good here. But he was stuck in this book two section, much as many of us felt a little stuck with the lag on the committee meetings and the notes, the minutes. He knew he needed to do something drastic to push his characters forward. And he thought losing somebody was maybe the only way to go. He had to create some big force that would propel all of the characters. So it was never even entirely about wrapping up Nick's story as much as it was moving everything else forward that you Mm. had to lose him. And I think that does make sense of his death a little bit more. And I mean, kind of bravo to him because it is this very climactic moment. Everything does kind of shift from here on out. And it is still very sad to lose somebody we came to love so much. Absolutely. And in first place with 50% is Franny. There's still two hours left in this poll, so these might change a little bit, but I think Franny's definitely the winner. Yeah. She went back into Harold's house, found out the truth, read his manuscript, was able to escape his house, run to Mother Abigail's house, and let Stu know there's a bomb. Did everything she possibly could. Let's see what the Clatchers had to say. Failed Gimmick says, gotta vote for Nick on his last episode. It's really a shame we didn't get to spend more time with he and Tom on the road. Yeah, it was one of the best parts of the book. Honorable mention to Joe and his cryptic clue to Larry. Hillary said, love the surprise with Joe. Franny rocks. Oh, Nick. And where is Tom on the list? Read the book so long ago, I don't remember the details and didn't see the 94 version. Really enjoying this series. Tom was one of the ones we were grappling with. Do we put him on there or do we put Harold, I think it was, that we were deciding between... Yeah, Failed Gimmick also said they've done a great job showing the conflict with Harold and Nadine. And then we have Josh Mull over at Facebook. Uh, This is about episode five, actually. He wrote, damn, I had a wacky idea I could have wrote in for, but I didn't get to watch the episode quick enough. You guys mentioned the galaxy in, in Flag's eyes, but not how sometimes it looks like that's what's in the stones as well. Oh, yeah, we talked about the colors being similar. Yeah, it could be... Uh, And I think the galaxy thing in the stone is unique to this version of the TV series. Okay. So that's kind of interesting. 
He says, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the King's universe and how almost all his books tie into the Dark Tower in some way. I'm kind of curious if there could be a connection to the lights from it. It's not exact, but Flag's eyes and the stones give me a sense of that. I have no clue what the new ending will be, but would it piss you off if Flag's origin changed and instead of some evil devil thing, he's really a malevolent alien of some kind that's mistakenly perceived as the devil? I don't know. It's probably too crazy, but I'm just getting weird vibes from the galaxy aspect of it all. Yeah, so I haven't read the Dark Tower series. I do know, and we mentioned how Flag ties into a great deal of other things in the Stephen King universe, and some version of him is brought up in other books, as well as the questionable connection to other malevolent forces, if you want to put it that way. So there's been questions about the deadlights from it. Mm, yeah. And if, if that could be a factor, sort of the greater idea of the galaxy, which of course the show down there takes place in a type of multiverse solar system universe. They definitely think that could be tying in. I wish I knew more about all things serve the beam, so to speak. I think you could be right. And I do think that King writes Flag in such a way that he's more of an agent of chaos than anything else. Mm. It says often that he came from out of time and he doesn't know himself. So even Flag might not entirely know what he is. He knows he's not the devil himself, but what sort of force is he? I think you really could go in any direction with that. Hi, Sarah calling in from Sarasota, Florida, part-time home of Stephen King. I have just started listening to you all because I just searched the stand on the Apple podcast store and found you all. Um, because I needed someone to hash it out with me. And so I've enjoyed listening to your thoughts along the way. Just got done with the last episode, and uh, I have a lot of thoughts on it. Basically, my first one is I'm really frustrated that we didn't get to see Judge Ferris's death. I wish we got to see that play out. I feel like we, um, especially for people who haven't read the books, I have read the books, but my partner has not. He didn't really get the brunt of it like I did. And I also feel that, with the ending and with uh, Franny coming and, and running to save it, the, the conversation with Franny and Harold is enlightening and, and definitely interesting and, and a way to, to put it across without having to read the manifesto. But uh, I feel like we're giving away so much to our audience, and I hope that it's not uh, not watering it down. I wasn't as pleased with this episode as I have been with the past, and uh Vegas is really frustrating. And also, what's up with uh, the BDSM uh, <laughs> trash can man with the needle sticking out of his neck? Um, this was not a short message. Sorry. Uh, but again, just want to say really enjoying the show um, and the podcast and can't wait to hear more. Thanks. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I believe we did a little bit about the trash can man, the way he was dressed. That was really all Ezra. Well, that's what I said. Even I think some of the acting, maybe he just got a little much slack to interpret that as he would. Yeah. And I, I just think he missed it. I also agree about the Ferris thing that they gave us a, a brief view of the scene of her in the hotel room, which was so great from the books. His, it was a man, Judge Ferris, in the novel having a showdown where he thought he might actually kill Flag because he appears as a crow outside his window. Mm. And he goes to take a shot at him and thinks, what if it was really that easy if I shot him and killed huh. him here? So I love that they gave us that, but really nothing else on the judge, which was disappointing. 
as a whole, the judge mean, meant nothing to the storyline. She didn't even reach her destination. We knew nothing about her when she was chosen. It was an afterthought, for sure. But I'm so glad to hear that finally we're showing up on those Apple searches and people can find us that way. We're glad to have you with us. Hey, Jason and Christina. This is Haley calling again. Um, I called right after the very first episode aired and had let you guys know that I'd never seen um, the first series or read the book. So I was completely new to the story. So I have caught up to episode four now. So I'm calling in again um, to let you guys know what I think. Um, I'm not concerned with the timeline jump at all. That doesn't bother me at all. The only thing that bothers me the most is that I feel like I want to know more about the characters, but I don't know enough about them. And I get that, you know, probably most people that watch this have already had some experience with it, so they kind of already know the characters. So I think my biggest thing is that I don't know if I wish I had already read the book or if it's cool coming in not knowing um, because I'm learning things from the podcast, um, from yours and the other one that I listened to. But I just think that they're rushing through so much character development, and I wish that it had been like a three to four season thing planned out and they had one episode, you know, dedicated to each character. And I just feel like there's so much character stuff that I'm missing and only nine episodes for this whole thing. But I um, am still loving it. Episode four was my favorite by far, just because I feel like there was a lot more just going on. And there, the whole thing with Franny and Harold and that trucker, um, the Tom and Nick thing um, with that, Harley Quinn like girl in the <laughs> furniture store and I, I just felt like it was very it was coming together and there was just a lot more action going on um I know some people complained about the town meeting and how it was boring but I don't think that stuff's boring at all I actually find it really interesting um watching stuff where they're trying to build a whole new society um there's a show on Netflix actually called The Society which it kind of reminded me of so if you guys ever have a chance to check that out but, um, yeah, my favorites so far are Franny, Sue, and um, obviously Tom, and I like Glenn also. And I just think that it's, it's just a really good series, and it's, I'm, I don't get all the hate for it. I'm really glad that you guys are still covering it and enjoying it, and uh, thanks again for all you do. Bye. Well, thanks for writing in, and, you know, Haley's at four, which was our favorite, and then five took a bit of a downtick, but now we're back up for six, so... I think it's interesting that for somebody who doesn't have the background, I always enjoy that better too, mm. coming in fresh and then later going back and being able to read and expand my knowledge because I always say you're bound to be disappointed if you come in with the book in your head. There's no avoiding it. But I think even she's picking up on the fact that there's not enough character development and that's falling a bit short. But I think, Christina, the podcast you're going to do after the show in regards to the book, someone like Haley might enjoy that. Because you're going to go deeper into the storylines and into the characters. So she will get an opportunity to get to know these characters better. Yeah, Haley, I hope you'll join us over there for that one. And that you continue to enjoy the series. Once you get to episode six or even seven, we'll be on next week. Give us a call back and let us know how it's working. Hey, this is Haley again. Sorry, you don't have to play the second message. But I had two questions and I completely forgot to ask. As far as Nadine goes, um, it seems like Joe has like a sixth sense or something about people. So I'm wondering why he goes to Nadine and is okay living with her and being alone with her if he, you know, senses the evilness of people. So I was wondering if there was any insight you had into that. And then also um, I was talking to some people at work and it's kind of like a mixed bag on people talking about if you have the virus, like everybody who's still alive 
are they all immune to the virus or did some people just never catch it? Um, so if you could elaborate on any of those two, that would be awesome. Thank you. Bye. Okay. So here's a guess. I think that Joe has a little bit of the shine, but it's not like the actual movie, The Shining, where Danny has one of the most powerful shines that uh, we've ever seen. Or even Dr. Sleep, where that character is even stronger with the shine. I think Joe is blessed with a little bit of the shine, um, but has never been taught how to utilize that power. So he's still figuring himself out and figuring this sense out. And I think those senses were muted when this whole event happened. And when Nadine came across him, he was so traumatized that that part of him wasn't even working. So he wasn't able to sense it at that point. That's a good guess on that. We don't get a lot more of that from the book, but I would say I think you're right. What we do get there that you're not seeing here is this essential good element of Nadine that there was in the beginning because we don't see her backstory and that she really was wrestling with this inner conflict about feeling chosen by Flag, but also kind of being disgusted by him. And her big shot at leading a different life started with being able to help Joe and taking him under her wing, trying to care for him. And Joe needed her and sensed that goodness in her. So I think you get a glimpse of that here in this episode where he knows there's another mommy Nadine inside of there. Can she come out? Can he help bring that out? Will Larry help her? He's sort of watching and trying to see how that's going to play out right until the very end. And when it doesn't happen, that's when he goes to find Mother Abigail. So kind of amazing. You're just getting the briefest of beats for Joe through all of that. I like that. Basically, Nadine isn't a bad person yet. She's on the she could go either way when Joe first meets her. Mm-hmm. And as she's becoming more and more bad, which we're seeing on the screen, it's becoming more evident to Joe, perhaps. And Joe kind of shifts more and more over to this relationship with Larry as that happens yeah. in the books. Now, as far as the super flu, that was really interesting and something we will break down a lot further in our book club talks. Hopefully we'll have a guest on who can talk a little more about medical stuff from a background I don't have. But what I can tell you that they discuss there is the fact that it is sort of an immunity. They keep talking about Stu when they're running these tests on him that he never really got the virus at all. As soon as it tried to enter the body, the body was just able to kick it. And at one point, they even inject it into Stu to see what will happen because he doesn't seem to be catching it. And his body immediately defeats it and shuts it down. So there is some sort of uh, really great immune system antibodies at work here that just tear the virus to parts. We don't know and never get to find out why exactly that happens. Why it could happen in real life? Again, I think we'll get some info on that book club style. So thank you, Haley. And we have one last call in for this week. Josie KC, what's up? This is Eric, aka Eman, the elder millennial. I just listened to your podcast. Yeah, y'all were down on that, but I understand why. I understand why. <laughs> I think I, I really liked it. I was like at a hotel room by myself on a trip and watched it late at night and uh, scared the crap out of me. And <laughs> it was a lot different feeling than the other episodes. And the one before, I agree with y'all, was, was really good. Definitely my favorite. So it's kind of a shift, a somatic shift. But um, I, I liked it because it was so, I mean, I didn't like that it was so dark, but it, I think they did such a really, a really good job of showing the darkness. You could really feel it, like a whole hour long. So they got a lot of time to, to do that. And I, yeah, the Las Vegas stuff, 
I I don't know. I kind of liked it because it showed the the depravity of the the people on you know, on the evil side. I I do agree with you that I think there should have been more Dana. I mean, I didn't even recognize her as one of the girls that the the evil trucker guy had stolen. So then when she came up in that next episode, I was like, who's that? But also, I haven't read the book or watched the 94 show and all any of that. So it's kind of, you know, I'm not comparing it to, I'm not missing out on the, the depth of it like y'all are. So I know that's hard to not compare it. But anyway, I'm enjoying it, though. I think I'm enjoying it because I'm really liking the, the acting. It's, it's excellent. And and uh, cinematography, music, like it's really, really well done, high-budget thing. But I do think they're lacking in the storytelling a bit, which is, of course, important, probably the most important thing, right? I can forgive it a little bit because every other aspect of the show is excellent. But I mean, I don't know the CBS All Access thing because it seems like every show is like that. It's like all really high budget, but like Star Trek Discovery, like, sucks now. I mean, I didn't like it to begin with either, really, but it's like gone really downhill. And um, the one they redid, Twilight Zone, like, that was also kind of crappy. And the other things I've seen, it just seems like they're throwing lots of money at things, but they're not, they're missing out on the subtlety and the character development and such. So anyway, I'm, I'm enjoying it and I'm hoping it'll, you know, it's kind of middle of the season. So maybe. Oh shit. It cut off. Thank you for calling man. Um, okay. So for the Vegas one, I see what you're saying. You like the depravity of everybody, but I, th- what we were saying last episode is we think there's more interest storyline wise if the people in Vegas aren't necessarily evil people, but if they were brought there for many reasons, one of which being a safe place to be, uh, a meal, structure. A sense of belonging. Yeah, if they were more gray. And you know what they're guilty of doing on the Boulder side as well, because as we mentioned, by not having that question linger longer, are people like Harold and Nadine going to be good or bad? Mm-hmm. Very early on, you have Harold writing a manifesto. He wants to kill everyone. They let the cat mm-hmm. out of the bag too early. Um, less black and white, I think would have been great, but I do agree. First of all, we were a little rough last time around. Sorry about that. Hopefully we've come back up on this episode. It is always going to suffer by comparison to source material. We can't help that. Overall though, I am so glad that this is bringing new people in on the story of the stand once more. I'm so thrilled to be talking about one of my favorite books, stories of all time. I'm definitely not losing sight of that, and any adaptation is excellent, so I'm glad that you guys are joining us for the ride. Before we get too far afield, Jason, we haven't given our MVS for the episode. You can go first this time, because I always end up stealing it from you. Okay, well, I'm going to give it to Franny, because I do think this is the first time really all season we've gotten to see her be a unique character and stand up for what she believes in and show her strength. She did make the effort to get through to Harold, and if anybody could have, it would have been her. I realize I haven't been able to give her MVS for this series, but absolutely an honorable mention, and I wish I could give it to two for Joe. Yeah, I was stuck between Joe and Franny. But since you went Franny, I'm going to go Joe. Good. A lot of intriguing moments. You know, I I mentioned with the trash can man, if you have have the T-man at a 16 all the time, it's less impactful during those moments when it's supposed to be crazy. This is exactly what I mean. Just the fact that Joe never talks, mm. that one sentence he whispers to Larry has so much more of an impact because of that. Yeah, after not saying anything this whole time, right? Yeah. And then you have the scream. It was incredible. And he's the a good actor. Moment. Yeah. This kid. I'm going Joe. I'm so glad you did. 
So as we've been saying, we really enjoyed this episode much more. And I didn't think the turnaround was going to come until next episode for me, just based on our prediction. So I am thrilled. So happy to see where we're going to go for 789 to finish this up. And so excited that there is going to be a book review after that. So if you're still with us, we hope that you keep going for this ride. If you like what you're hearing, head on over to iTunes or your podcast platform. Give us a rate and review. It seems like from some of our call-ins, that's finally starting to work. That would really help us a lot if you could join in. And tell your friends. Um, If you're enjoying it and you have uh, like-minded friends and family members, let them know about us. The only way we can grow is by word of mouth. And everything we're doing, you can find over at coffeeclatchcrew.com. That's going to do it for this time, except for the spoiler section. If you're afraid of that, we will see you next week when we review episode seven. For everyone still here, we are in the spoiler section now because I am in the way of knowing things. This time, we're going to go back to what Flag talked about, where he mentioned the Tsar Bama, Soviet 1961 nuclear testing. Now, I knew a little about this, but not the full background, which was interesting to read on. In 1961, a group of 57 nuclear tests were conducted, including the one on October 30th, the largest nuclear weapon ever constructed, which was set off over an island in the Russian Arctic Sea. The Soviet Sarbama had a yield of 50 megatons, or the power of around 3,800 Hiroshima bombs detonated simultaneously. While its official designation was RDS-220 hydrogen bomb, it was nicknamed Sarbama. Although detonated two and a half miles above ground, ready for this? A seismic shockwave equivalent to an earthquake of over a five on the Richter scale was measured around the world. Yeah, obviously, idiots. The mushroom cloud reached a height of 37 miles. The ring of absolute destruction had a 21-mile radius. The test came amid rising political tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. A testing moratorium was broken, and soon both countries conducted more nuclear tests than in the past 16 years before that causing a spike in global radiation levels. After a total of 715 tests, the Russian Federation signed the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty in 1996. I get, like, if it's over the ocean, so humans won't, possibly won't get affected. But what about all the sea life? And it was high up in the air for that reason, but this is radiation. It's going to affect a lot of things. And, you know, like I said, the U.S. guilty as well. And that takes me into the next point where he's telling Trash, Flag that is, to go out into the desert yep, to a specific site where he's going to look for something. A testing site, yep. Could this be the Nevada National Security Site, formerly known as the Nevada Proving Grounds? That's a U.S. DOE reservation for the testing of nuclear devices covering 1,360 square miles of Nevada desert. Over 1,000 nuclear explosions have been detonated there. During the 1950s, the mushroom clouds from over 100 tests could be seen from 100 miles away, including in Vegas, where they experienced seismic effects. So King would have known this while writing the book, and I'm sure there's a tip going on. That's all interesting and relevant information that they just sort of breezed right by in the episode, and I liked how they just gave it a little plant and didn't go further. Now, we also mentioned that there was a lot more about the Trash Can Man. We talked about some of that, the extensive history. It's really hard to get into without having this be an incredibly long conversation. The fact that Trash was just more fully fleshed out. One of the areas that is 
questionable does it add to it or not is something that was included in the expanded version of the novel, but not the original. A bunch of scenes where Trash encounters a man called The Kid. And we had wondered if we were getting The Kid this time around. We mentioned a while back that the writers considered including it, but decided that it didn't really add enough to Trash's story and didn't fit. Uh, He was a really depraved individual who wound up raping and abusing Trash before he was able to get away from him. Just one more thing that Trash had to go through. Mm-hmm. But as I say, it's, it's really tough to s- trim all that down. So we're going to be talking about him further when we get into our book review, if you're looking for more information on that. Coming back to the series, next time, episode seven, will be called The Walk. And those who are familiar with the show will know exactly what The Walk means. But if Tom's involved, is it the moonwalk? Oh, dear. Well, (laughs) excitingly, this one is going to be written by Owen King and directed by Vincenzo Natale. And we talked a lot about that. I'm very eager to see where his direction will go. He'll be doing seven and eight. Eight will be written by Ben Cavill. These next three episodes are going to be the shit. Oh, yeah. The finale written by King himself, directed by Josh Boone. A whole new coda. Can't wait. That's it for this episode. So until next week, you come see me anytime. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CKC Podcast. And if you'd like to support Jason and Christina and would love even more content, including bonus casts and movie reviews, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash CKC Podcast. This round is on me.